I do. It's uh, it's, it's July second, um, but the fourth is on Tuesday. So happy Fourth of July to you. If you're welcome. That's very polite. Oh, Jewel. Um, if if you have uh, ever served in the military, uh, if you've got a family member that's ever served in the military, on on Tuesday we're going to get to celebrate. Um, some of the things that we love about America and the freedoms that we have and, and uh, certainly recognize that we do not have those without the sacrifices of the individuals who have made that possible. And so I want to say thank you um, if you've ever served um, or you've got a family member that's ever served, at least for myself, um, deeply, deeply thankful for the individuals who made, that, made this place possible for us. So I hope, that, I hope on Tuesday that... Uh, Everyone's able to enjoy the Fourth of July. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk this morning uh, about um, an individual who lives in a place that is uh, faithless, and yet uh, he's able to demonstrate incredible faith. And uh, there's a lot about Daniel. That's who we're gonna look at today, and his his life. His model, his example, I think is incredibly applicable to the situation we find ourselves in today. And so if you've got a Bible you want to open up to to Daniel, we're right in the middle if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, or maybe you've come a couple times, but you've not heard us explain this. We're in the middle of walking through the uh, narrative sections of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation over the course of 2017. Today actually takes us over the halfway point of that uh, of that journey. We started in January in the book of Genesis. We have worked our way through um, the majority of the historical books of the Old Testament. And we have just a few left to go. After this week, we're going to read Daniel this week, which is a prophet. Daniel is, a, is one of the prophet books, but it contains historical narrative detail about what life was like in the exile time uh, for the Israelites. And then we've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther remaining in the Old Testament before we flip over to the Gospels. And so uh, what we're attempting to do over the course of the year uh, is see that Scripture from beginning to end is one connected, long narrative, one story of God's work to redeem humanity from their sin through the person of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. And um, we are walking our way through that. We have a reading plan that Uh, many in our church are taking part in. And so I'll teach on Daniel today, and then we read about Daniel throughout the course of this week. And so my hope today is to be able to frame the entire book of Daniel by just looking at chapter one. Uh, And so I'm going to begin, I'm just going to read the first two verses of Daniel chapter one, and it kind of sets uh, sets the stage, if you will, in terms of the setting and those kinds of things. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The book of Daniel takes place during the exile. So last week we talked about Assyria coming and capturing Israel, the northern half, the northern, not half, but portion of the Israelite people and taking them into exile. And then Babylon comes to Judah about 100 years, a little more than 100 years later, and in three waves takes the people of Judah into exile. Daniel 
uh, is living in Jerusalem. He's in Judah. He gets taken into exile by the Babylonians. And there's this 70 year period. That's how long the Israelite people are kicked out of their land, are kicked out of the city of Jerusalem. And Daniel lives the vast majority of his life in that 70 year period. In fact, he never goes back to Jerusalem. He's carried away into exile when the the first wave of Babylonians come into the city of Jerusalem, and he never gets to go back. Uh, What uh, the whole book of Daniel offers is this incredible picture of something we talked about last week. And that's that when we read the Old Testament, we should be amazed that God would be continually faithful and loving and gracious and patient with the Israelite people. Their sin is repeated, it's repetitive, it just never ends, it kind of grows in its intensity over time uh, in the Old Testament, finally arriving at the place where God says, look, I'm bringing judgment, and I'm kicking you out of the land I gave you. And so that's where they are, and yet, in the book of Daniel, we'll see that God, even in the midst of that judgment that he brought himself, he allowed to happen, he's going to be incredibly loving to the Israelite people. Daniel as a book in general breaks down into two big sections. Chapters 1 through 6 are the story of Daniel's life in captivity in Babylon. Chapters 7 through 12 are some prophetic visions, uh, dreams that he has during that time. So there's a narrative portion, a story, and there's a prophecy portion on the back half. Um, Daniel as an individual is an amazing picture an amazing, amazing model for us. And I want to begin explaining why. So jump with me, verse 3. I'm going to read 3 through uh, verse 7. It says this, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, chief, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are Babylonian people. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So Daniel, he's taken into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were interesting in the way that they ruled and that their goal was not to force you into being Babylonian. They would take over a new place. Their hope was that you would come to see how wonderful Babylonian style of life was and you would just want to assimilate into that. And so they take some of the most uh, influential, uh, some of them are, no, are of the nobility, some of them are just respected uh, young men, they're talented, they're They've got platforms, and they put them into this kind of indoctrination sort of school thing for three years, hoping that by showing them the literature, teaching them the language, giving them a job, showing them the customs of the Babylonian uh, people and nation, that they would then go back to wherever it is, whatever job that they've got, and be able to spread that among the Israelite people. That's the goal. So that all of the Israelites would just choose to be Babylonian. Like, hey, you don't got to force me to do anything. This is just so appealing. I, would, I will choose it voluntarily. And part of that process is religious. It's trying to get the Israelite people to see that our gods are better than your one God. And it's actually reflected in the name changes 
that all uh, Daniel and his three friends get. Let me just walk through it really quick. Daniel, the name, just the actual name itself, means God is my judge. And as you read the book of Daniel, you're going to see that he lives by that. He understands that Nebuchadnezzar is not his judge. He understands that these false gods of the Babylonian people are not his judge, and that that means that he needs to live in light of the only thing, the only being that's ever going to judge him. And that marks his life throughout. But he gets this new name, Belteshazzar, which means, may Baal protect your life. So we've, Babylonians have switched which god we're naming after. It's not Yahweh. We're going to name you after Baal. Hananiah means Jehovah has been gracious. His name gets changed to Shadrach, which means I'm at the command of Aku, A-C-C-O-U, if you're a note taker and you're interested. Aku is a Babylonian god. Mishael, his name means who is like our God. He gets the name Meshach, which means who is like Aku. Azariah means the Lord helps. He gets named Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. So in the midst of learning their culture and learning their customs and learning their literature and trying to figure out the language, they get these new names that are supposed to reflect these new gods. Part of what uh, the Babylonians believed was that if we came in and conquered your people, it must mean that our God is better than your God, so why would you not worship what we do? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they are totally not phased by that. In fact, what Daniel's life shows us is what it means to be faithful in a faithless society. Because above all, that is what Daniel is. He's faithful in a faithless society. As a side note, this is my favorite book in the Old Testament. It was really, really hard for me to pare down into one uh, 30-minute message for this because I would want to spend hours talking about Daniel. He is this incredible picture. And oftentimes I hear people say things like, well, I don't really spend much time reading the Old Testament because it doesn't apply or it doesn't matter now or Jesus made it irrelevant or whatever the case might be. To which I respond, if you could read something about an individual who is faithful in a faithless society, would you not say, hey, that sounds helpful? How did he do that? How did that work? This absolutely applies to life Today And what it displays are these foundational principles that Daniel uses that he builds his life on in Babylon. Daniel is going to outlast three kings. He's going to outlast two nations, two languages, two different sets of cultural customs. And he's never swayed in his faithfulness. That's because his faith and his life are not based on anything external. It's not based one bit on what's happening around him. He's got a foundation that's built on something else. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to start it in verse 8. Here's what the first half of verse 8 says. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Stop there. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Daniel has conviction. It forms the bedrock of how he's about to live the rest of his life. Tom Nelson, he's a pastor down in Texas, in Denton, Texas. He says that a conviction is not merely an opinion you hold. It's an opinion that holds you. Daniel doesn't just have some things that he thinks. He's got opinions that dictate. He's got uh, ideas. He's got a way that he's directing his life that dictates how it is that he's going to live in any situation. How do I know that? Well, let's take a look at what's already happened in Daniel's life. 
He gets deported to Babylon, so he's a deportee in a place he didn't want to go. They're asking him to read certain books, learn a new language, take a new name, get a job in a secular place. They're asking him to figure out the customs of this new place and to help other people understand those. And to all of that, Daniel says, you know what, whatever. Call me what you want. I'll speak whatever you want me to speak. I'll read whatever you want me to read. It doesn't matter. But at a certain point, Daniel says, hold on, hold on. I won't eat that. I won't do that. Sure, call me Belteshazzar. Don't care. Make me read your books. Whatever. But he says, I won't eat that food. His convictions aren't arbitrary. They're based on something. They're based on what is sin, what does God's word define as sin, and what does it not define as sin. And as soon as he's asked to do something that would cross him over the line of sinning, he says, whoa, that's where I draw the line. I will not go to that spot. Scholars kind of um, debate back and forth a little bit. What was it about the food that caused Daniel to pump the brakes? Leviticus says that uh, an Israelite person was not supposed to eat anything that was sacrificed to an idol, to a false god. So it's possible that that's what's happening with the king's meat here. And Daniel says, I won't eat that. Leviticus says that that's sinful. It's also possible that the food is not sacrificed to idols, or Daniel, it's impossible for Daniel to know whether it's been sacrificed to idols, but it's pork or it's certain types of seafood that Israelites weren't supposed to eat, again, according to Leviticus. Either way, Daniel understands God's word says, I'm not to do this. And I draw the line there. He's got conviction about it. He's resolved is what the biblical text tells us. I want to make a second point here because I think it's equally as important. Daniel's conviction begins early in life. It's at a young age. He's about 15 years old when he gets taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, when he gets taken into captivity. So by the age of 15... Daniel not only knows scripture well enough and is walking with the Lord closely enough to understand where his conviction should lie, he's also just committed to living that way. Fifteen years old, Daniel walked out of Jerusalem in captivity, essentially as one step above a slave, and said, you know what, when I'm living here in Jerusalem, I won't eat certain food. I won't do certain things, and you can drop me in Babylon, and I still won't eat the same junk, and I won't do certain stuff. At a young age, he is convinced of that. He didn't wait until he got into a critical situation and then ask himself, what am I supposed to do here? And then go to Scripture and try to figure it out. He was certain ahead of time. Young people. You decide if you're young people or not. Young people, oftentimes what people in middle school or high school or college or young adults who aren't married yet or just married people, people who don't have kids yet, you know what they say? I'll wait till the next stage of life to figure that out. I'm just in middle school now. This isn't all that important. I'll wait till high school. I'm in high school. Everything's fine. I still live at home with my parents. They kind of make me do certain stuff. I'll get this stuff sorted out when I go to college and I live on my own. Well, now in college, I, I really want to be able to like experience life and have fun. And so I'll get this sorted out when I get a job or when I get married or when we have kids because then it's important to the kids. Well, guess what? If you've put it off from age 12, 
until you have kids at fill-in-the-blank age, what are the odds that you're going to make a snap decision when that baby's born that all of a sudden we're going to get everything right, we're going to line things up? Probably pretty low. Probably pretty low. That's not to discount or disregard the fact that the Lord can break through in a person's life at any stage and help them really turn things around and walk away from sin and repent and and move in a way that's obedient to him. But at the same time, if you've been growing up in the church, in faith, and you've put off obedience for so long, you've become so calloused to it at a certain point that it's probably not ever going to happen. I'll do it later becomes code for I'm not really ever going to get around to it. If you're a young person in here, you defined yourself as young, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Why are you not pressing into that now? I can't tell you the number of times in in my youth ministry career, uh, tenure, I don't know what the right word is, uh, I took a phone call from a college freshman who said, uh, hey, things aren't going super well. And I said, well, why not? Well, and they kind of start to unload this story. I got here. I'd been in my dorm room for like a couple of days and uh, people were, were going out and, and doing whatever and I kept getting invited and I tried to, I tried to like say no a, a couple times, but then I realized that I was lonely or I was bored, and so I thought it would just be better to go with them. And then they just described this kind of downhill spiral. I said, well, how, how, did, how did that happen? And, and they said, well, I guess, I guess I just wasn't really firm on what I would or wouldn't do when I got here. Daniel's firm when he leaves Jerusalem what he will and he will not do. He's got conviction. Conviction. If you're young and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know what I would or I wouldn't do, answer code. Right? It's like all the odd number questions in the math book, the answers are in the back. Do they still do that? I think they still do that. This isn't the answer to just the odd numbered questions. This is the answer to all of the questions. What will I do? What will I not do? What should I do? What should I not do? And maybe you say to yourself as a young person, I understand that it's in there, but I have a really hard time understanding it. To which I would say, find someone who does. Parents, help. Parent says, I'm not really sure what it says. Well, then parent, find someone who does so that you can understand. And maybe just take your child with you as if this person understands. We're going to spend some time with them. Think about it. Talk about it. Help spell it out for your children. And maybe you feel like, you know what, they don't ever listen. Well, I promise something's getting through there. And even if you don't think any fruit is coming, it wasn't your responsibility to produce the fruit anyway. It was up to the Lord. So do what you can, parents. If you're a D group leader, if you've ever been a small group leader in our youth ministry, if you're a small group leader with adults in our church, it is your role to help captivate people with the reality of the gospel, to help them understand their need for a savior and that Jesus Christ is that savior and then to help them walk in light of that gospel every single day. And the the answer is here. Daniel's got conviction And he's worked it out in 15 years of his life. And then when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's not thrown off. Or when he arrives outside of Jerusalem, he's not thrown off 
at all. Not one bit. Okay, second part of verse 8. We're going to make it. Okay. I promise we're going to get to verse 21. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel is committed to being both holy and holy in his surrounding culture. Let me tell you what would likely happen in 2017 America if this situation were to play out. And a person arrives in a place and somebody says, you need to eat this food and do these things. More than likely, a well-meaning, believing individual would say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And when the king or whoever said, yes, you are, we would say, okay, I want to leave then. And they would say, uh, you're a deportee. You can't, that's not how this works. You can't leave. Okay, I'm hiring a lawyer and I'm going to sue you so that I don't have to do that. Notice that Daniel doesn't do any of that. Daniel understands, this is where I am. The Lord carried me here. He has planted me here. And all I'm trying to figure out how to do is be faithful here, not somewhere else. I believe really, really firmly that if you're alive and breathing in this room, Yep. Raise your hand. Perfect. Then you are alive and breathing in this room at this time in this place for a specific reason that God has placed you here right now. And you might look around at our social political climate in America and say, this is a mess. And I would say you're pretty much right. There's a lot that's broken. There's a lot that's sinful. There's a lot of darkness in a lot of different places. And it might feel like we're drifting further and further into the brokenness or into the darkness or into the sinfulness, or whatever the case might be, but you are here. Be here. Be here. Is it difficult at times to be a Christian in America? It can be. It can be hard. But at the same time, I believe with every fiber of my being, that there is an opportunity for the church in America to shine the gospel brightly like never before and that you are here, a part of the church in America, for that reason. The worst thing we could do would be to wash our hands of the culture around us and say, you know what, forget you guys. I'm gonna end up in heaven anyway, so you just go to hell in a handbasket and I'll hang on until Jesus takes me home. No, Daniel's got a contemporary who's living at the same time as him. His name's Jeremiah. A couple books back to the left in your Bible. Jeremiah is a prophet. He speaks on behalf of the Lord. And in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, he writes this letter to the exiles, God speaking through him. And in verse 7, 29, 7, it says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare is your welfare. Be there. I'm sending you there. Show the gospel in that place. What does that mean, Tim? It means if you run a business, commit that business to bringing kingdom realities into this world and run it as Christ-like as possible. You You teach in a classroom or you're a principal. Run that classroom, run that school as best you can and help it to exemplify Christ in every way possible. You've got a cubicle on the 12th floor at Cerner. Pick your Cerner building. 
You might not have influence anywhere else outside what feels like that very small cubicle, but I hope when someone comes and visits that cubicle, they get this fresh breeze of the gospel that they don't get anywhere else because you're wholly committed to being there and being holy in that spot, shining the light of the gospel right there. That's what we're called to. That's how we bring kingdom realities into the world. We don't write it off and say, whatever, it's all going to be better in eternity. No, we spend ourselves making the gospel apparent right here. And if God calls you to another place, then you go to that place and you make the gospel apparent there. Be fully there. It's that New Testament idea of be in the world, not of the world. You be all in in the place where God calls you. But you be holy and faithful to him in the midst of that place. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel has this incredible reputation. He's got a good reputation with those outside the faith. And God grants him that. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It's something that's going to pop up all throughout the book of Daniel as you read it. New kings come in and he just keeps getting elevated in position. He keeps getting a larger platform, more influence. At one point in chapter 6, he's in this position where there are only like two or three of him over the entire uh, country. Persia is ruling at the time. And there are some other guys who become jealous of that, and they want that same position. And so they try to come up with a way to bring him down, to uh, cause the king to kick him out of his spot. And this is what we're told, chapter 6. The high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And there was no error found in him. That's the way you want your neighbors to talk about you. You live faithfully according to the word of the Lord for the good of the place wherever you are, wherever it is that God has called you. And what could someone possibly say against you? Man, There's this Christian lady that works in the office over from me, and I don't want anything to do with Christianity, but she's so kind. I wish she'd go away. I do business with this guy, and he's super honest. I can't stand it. No, no one's going to say that. You live faithfully, according to Scripture, for the good of the place where you are, And maybe the people around you want nothing to do with the gospel. They don't want to hear about your Christianity. But at the very worst, they're going to think, there's this really nice Christian person that works over there. I don't want to hear about the gospel. I'm I'm not particularly religious or whatever the case might be, but I really appreciate that person. That's the way as the church we should want people to talk about us. And if we live faithfully according to the word for the good of the place where we are, I believe firmly that God will grant that sort of favor in the eyes of other people. Why do I believe that? Well, because it pops up all throughout Scripture, not just the book of Daniel. It happens in the New Testament as well. As the church is expanding rapidly in the book of Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 2, there's this little phrase at the end of one of the very last verses. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people. Daniel has this good reputation with those outside the faith. 
even though he's living faithfully in a faithless place. Verses 10 through 13. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed and deal with your servants according to what you see. I want to just point out two things very briefly. The first is that Daniel is encouraged by faithful community. He's not going at this thing alone. He's got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's got Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah along with him. If you want to make trying to live faithfully in a faithless place even more difficult than it already is, try to go solo. You walk in here on Sunday mornings, you plop yourself down in the back row, you kind of try to remain anonymous because that seems more comfortable, and then you're trying to figure out why it's so hard to be Christian. I'll tell you why it's hard to be Christian. Because it was never intended to be lived alone. That's why small groups are important to us here. That's why discipleship relationships are important to us here. It's not so that we can write on our website about small groups or so that we can publish some report about how many groups we have and how many people are in them. We don't even publish that report. I can't tell you what the answer is. We have small groups so that people can experience community with one another. That there can be encouragement and accountability. That when your conviction starts to waver a little bit, there's someone who can stand alongside you and say, no, 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 we know this to be true. Persevere. Press on. That sort of encouragement. You think when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were finding out they were going to be tossed in the fiery furnace, and they looked at Daniel and said, hey, I think we'll just bow down to the statue. You think Daniel said, hey, good call, man. No, he said, we know better than that. There's community and accountability here. That's why we live in relationship. That's why small group kind of living in ministry is so important to us because we believe that sort of encouragement and accountability is necessary in the life of a believer. If you've got an NIV, uh, somebody look at verse 12 and tell me the first word that you see in verse 12. An NIV, that was an ESV, but thank you. Please, please, right? Please test your servant for 10 days. The second thing about Daniel from this short passage is that he's not looking to pick a fight. Not Daniel's goal. He disagrees, but he's not trying to be disagreeable. He's respectful where respect is due. Unfortunately, one of the things that commonly gets lobbed against Christians today is that when we disagree, we're judgmental or arrogant or angry about it. And there's a time and a place to be upset and to be angry, but there's also a time and a place to be respectful and to disagree lovingly. Daniel doesn't unload on the eunuch a list of 14 reasons and the biblical support for why it is that he's not going to eat the meat. He just says, hey, I don't want to eat the meat. Please test me for 10 days. And if you're worried that the king is going to kill you, if I'm skinny and malnourished at the end of 10 days, you kill me. Deal with me how you will choose. He's respectful about it. He's not trying to pick a fight. In general, throughout the book of Daniel, when he's got a disagreement, he's going to be incredibly humble and incredibly loving about it. But he's also going to stand firm. And living in that tension is possible. 
verses 14 to 20. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them was found... Our none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Daniel trusts in the Lord's faithfulness. He trusts that if I'm faithful, God will be faithful in return. But it's important we understand exactly what that looks like in the book of Daniel, because the answer is not that God spares Daniel from any difficulty that might come his way. In fact, the opposite is true. God is faithful in Daniel chapter 3 to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they get tossed into the fiery furnace. God is faithful to Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 when he gets put into the lion's den. He's faithful there, but they understand that they could be killed. God's faithfulness doesn't mean that he's going to save them from all the difficulties that come along with living among a faithless people. Instead, his faithfulness is that he's going to preserve them in the midst of it and will ultimately, eternally deliver them in the end. The same is true today. At the end of all things, God is going to prove himself to be overwhelmingly, unimaginably faithful to those who have placed their faith in him. But that doesn't mean that there won't be some fiery, Liony moments between now and then. It doesn't mean that God is going to pluck you out of situation that or every situation that may potentially be difficult. In fact, it could mean that He leaves you right there in the middle of it intentionally. And that's something that I want you to observe as you read this week. When you come to Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6, notice something. God doesn't deliver them from the potential punishment. In fact, they get exactly what the king at the time said they were going to get. God sustains them during it and delivers them through it. But while it's happening, they experience a grace of the Lord that they wouldn't have known otherwise. Both in the furnace and in the lion's den, these four men encounter the presence of the Lord. The very presence of God in a way that they could not have experienced had they not ever been thrown into that thing. We spend a lot of time and a lot of energy in America praying that things that might cause us discomfort wouldn't come our way. That's kind of our bent in America. But what if the reality is that God, in the midst of that uncomfortable, in the midst of that difficult, in the midst of that trying thing, wants to manifest his presence to you in a way that he could not in any other situation? Could you trust his faithfulness right there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown in the fire. They say, you know what? Throw us in. The God whom we serve can save us. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow to your statue, Nebuchadnezzar. They trust in God's faithfulness. Last verse, verse 21. And Daniel was there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus isn't the king that comes after Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king that comes after the king that comes after Nebuchadnezzar. 
70 years worth of time spent in exile. It's during the reign of King Cyrus that some of the Israelites are going to be allowed to go back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the walls and the temple and to reinstitute the Lord's law. That happens in Ezra and Nehemiah. But Daniel is going to live the entire time in captivity. There, somewhere in a capital city in in Persia or in Babylon. He's going to spend 40 years of that time with Nebuchadnezzar specifically, ruling as king. And what Daniel has is lifelong commitment, long-term commitment. This is where I, I, I want to end things this morning. My favorite attribute of God is that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not ever going to change on me. The God I read about in the book of Genesis is the same God I'm going to experience for all of eternity. I think that's why I love Daniel so much. 70 years of faithfulness in a faithless place that's not ever shaken by a new king or a new culture or a new language or new customs. He's got conviction that's rooted in the word of the Lord. He's respectful toward the people that he disagrees with, but he's firm nonetheless. And he just never wavers in that. And one of the things that's so beautiful that happens in the book of Daniel is that he's got this relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. And on two different occasions, Nebuchadnezzar sees something in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that causes him to issue a proclamation to everyone in Babylon. The first one happens right after the fiery furnace experience in Daniel chapter 3. And Nebuchadnezzar makes this proclamation about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That everyone should be amazed by what the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has done. But then at the end of chapter 4, after Nebuchadnezzar has had this amazingly humbling experience that Daniel told him was coming, he issues a different proclamation. This time he says, oh, sorry, I'm on the wrong chapter. I almost read the wrong verse. This time he says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Lord most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. 40 years with Nebuchadnezzar. And you know what's amazing? You're going to spend eternity with him if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Daniel takes this long view of glorifying the Lord in the eyes of the people that are faithless around him, and God brings fruit to it. He's unmoving. He's unshaking in that. He's faithless in a faithless society. And if when you get to eternity in the presence of the Lord, you're able to carve out 10 minutes of your eternity to have a conversation with Nebi, I think what he's going to tell you, maybe with some tears in his eyes, although there won't be any tears, so with joy in his eyes, is that the reason he's there is because of the work of the Lord through the faithfulness of Daniel. I hope there's someone, I hope there are a host of someones in your life that you would be willing to lovingly and patiently and faithfully walk alongside for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years if you had to so that maybe the Lord might use the faithfulness of your life to draw them to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. I worked at a previous church and the lead pastor there used to say all the time that very rarely does someone not come to faith on the arm of a friend. 
that someone's got to share the gospel with those people. And oftentimes what we do or what we think to ourselves is, well, I shared it one time. I've known this person for like two whole months and I've been trying to share the gospel with them and I just don't think they're interested. Yeah, they might not be interested for 40 years, so press on. You be faithful in that place, be all in and be holy there and have conviction, but be loving and just give your whole life to it every day of your life until the Lord decides you have no more days and in the intervening time, just pray that he would break through and bring fruit into people's lives. That the Spirit would use your life to transform the eternity of another person. And you just live faithfully in the meantime. No matter how faithless the world around you becomes. I don't know what's coming in the future of America. I don't know what's coming in the future of your life. You might be called to a different city or to a different country and to a place where it seems darker and bleaker and more broken than here. And it shouldn't matter. That shouldn't affect how you live. That's the beauty of the model of Daniel. And as you read this week, I pray that the, the, the Lord just breaks open the doors of your heart to view our world and our time right now the same way Daniel must have viewed his, which was not angry and upset about the idolatry and the sinfulness about it, but instead broken for the people who are in the midst of it. I pray that as our nation seems to drift you know, further away from being a, a country that's founded on Christian principles, that our hearts would break more and more and more for the people of this place and that we would allow the Lord to use our faithfulness to draw faithful, faithless people to him. That ought to be what drives every Christian out of bed in the morning. To just magnify and honor and glorify the Lord for every day until you stop breathing or Jesus comes back and pray that he would bring fruit to that effort. And maybe you die and you've not seen any of it. And yet, nonetheless, you take your last breath trusting in the faithfulness of God. That's the beauty of the life of Daniel. I hope that you're able to see that over the course of this week. We're going to close our time uh, worshiping this morning. And I want to give you kind of something to think about while we do that. And that's to consider where are you along some of these things in the life of Daniel? Where are you in terms of your conviction? Where are you in terms of community? Where are you in terms of... uh, a commitment to living for the Lord no matter what your circumstances are for all the days of your life and allow the Lord to challenge where you need to be challenged. Allow the Lord to press where you need to be pressed and then make an appropriate response. Allow the Spirit of the Lord to work in your heart to draw you further into the kind of faithfulness we see in the life of Daniel. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today for the opportunity to come together and to worship, Lord, for the opportunity to see a model of faithfulness in your word that should be inspiring and captivating to us in our world today. Lord, would you capture our hearts and continue to transform our lives so that we live faithfully in an increasingly faithless society, Lord. I pray that each and every one of us in this room and in the church across the nation and around the world, Lord, that we would commit ourselves to lives of faithfulness, regardless of where you call us, Lord, and allow you to bring fruit to that effort. God, my prayer is that your spirit, that you would be able to work through the faithfulness of your people so as to draw others to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.